We are uh, taking three weeks here, taking a hiatus from Luke. We got like one week left at Luke, but we're taking three weeks uh, because this is a special time. You don't have a 25th anniversary every year. And this is truly a special time. And we thought it would be wise to look back on what we see as what is important for our church. What we think, though, or what we feel is utterly irrelevant if it does not correspond to what God says. What God says about His church in His Word is what is true, and therefore it is fundamental. It is what He says in His Word that is reality. And like gravity, we defy that reality. If we do so, we do it to our own demise. Years ago, when the leadership of the church came to understand really the fundamental truths about what a church is in general, and about really our church in particular, they did so, we did so, in light of what God's Word says. There is a direct flow to what we see as the three distinct fundamental purposes to our church. Last week, Jeremy hit the big one, that a church is to exalt God. In the beginning, God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. We love because He first loved us. It is by grace God's grace that we are saved. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We are created for His glory. In Him, we find our fullness and our satisfaction. What flows directly from that is the second purpose we see of the church is the church. Then as we glorify God, He has created us to build up one another, to equip one another. Keith Stone, our founding pastor, will preach on that next week. But it's based and founded upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, upon the truth of God's Word, and for the glory of the living God that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are to edify one another, to exhort and encourage one another in this dark time. This week, we're going to look at what flows directly out of that. And that is we are then, as a built-up church, to go out and to evangelize the world. The church is not to be an enclave. It's not to be a monastery in isolation. Jesus said that we are to be a city on a hill. Everybody can see it. A light in a dark and dying world, a beacon for all to see, the rescue ship for those who desire to be saved. But how do we do that? We believe that in God's word, it is made plain that a living and healthy church will go out into the world to live and share the good news of Jesus Christ. But for me to share the good news, i got to have the good news. 
That's why it flows out of a healthy, growing people. When I was a kid, I went to hockey camp in Faribault, Minnesota. And guess who ran the camp? Hockey players. Hockey players ran the hockey camp. Crazy, huh? Why? Because hockey players want to teach you how to play hockey. They know how to play hockey. They like it. They go, oh, it's the greatest thing. Let me show you how to do it. It makes sense. But Christians are reticent to do this very thing. If we were to play Family Feud and ask, what is the single hardest thing for a Christian to do? Survey says number three would be to read the Word. Number two would be to pray. Number one would be to evangelize to go out and share their faith. So today we're going to look at why as a believer do I not evangelize? And then we're going to look at God's word and what God's word says about how do I do this? To give me some clarity, to give me some encouragement from God's word. Let's bow together. Father, let your word be exalted Let the word of Christ be high and lifted up. Let Christ be glorified. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, attune our ears. Help us to set aside the distractions that we might hear your word, that we might be the salt and light you would have us to be. Father, that we would delight in doing this thing. Guard my lips. Guard the meditations of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So why do we not evangelize? And I would argue that we do not fundamentally grasp two key aspects of the gospel. Two. Two big ones. And you go, well, let's talk about the gospel first. What is the gospel? Because ultimately, if I am going to share the good news, that's what evangelism means, good news, the evangelon. If I'm going to do that, I've got to know what it is. First, we have an awesome God. There is an awesome God. There is a God. In the beginning, God. God and his glory. Second, his creatures are a mess. Sinners. None righteous. No, not one. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Third, God has made a way of restoration. God has fixed the problem in Christ. He made... God the Father made God the Son. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It is a free gift. Romans 3.24 No strings attached. It is by grace. Fourth, we repent And take hold of that by faith. And then we don't just live, we don't just cross the bridge into salvation and just stand there. We live 
than the life that God has freed us to live. The gospel in a nutshell. But if man doesn't get the greatness of God, and if man doesn't get the greatness of his sin before God, he's not going to want to be saved. He doesn't even think he needs to be saved. John Piper wrote, where God is small and man is big, hell will be abhorrent. It's indeed absurd. The cross is foolishness. I don't need to be saved. From what? Life's great. You do not believe that you need surgery until you see the x-ray with the spot. This is why John the Baptist and Jesus Christ both came preaching the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Go to Matthew. Start reading through Matthew. John's sermon, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first sermon recorded by Jesus Christ, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The same thing. You are broken. But it's not just the lost that don't get the gravity of sin or the glory of God. I would argue that for us to go out into the world, we don't get it. Because if I understood the greatness and the glory of God, I'd want people to come to Him. If I understood the depth and depravity and terror and decadence of my own sin and understood it in the lives of others, I would want to save them. I am in a boat, the Titanic is sinking, and I am warm and dry, and there are people in the water. And I don't sit there and go, it stinks to be them. I row. So first, what I would like us to stew on for a bit is the greatness of our God. Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My soul thirsts for the living God. We don't understand how great God is. Give me Jesus. David in Psalm 16 verse 2 said, I have no good apart from you. We have all kinds of great toys. We have all kinds of great food. But if I'm enjoying things in this speck of eternity that is called my existence, 
and I have an eternity of damnation and hell to look forward to, what good is this? And if I can have the one who has created these things, who is good and beautiful and beyond measure, in him is my fullness, in him is my satisfaction, in him is my completeness. Do I know this naturally? I don't. I don't get it. This is what God's word tells me. It tells me, Keith, you're looking in the wrong places. Well, is God really going to satisfy? It says he will. It says that he does. This is why the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Love God with all of your being. This is why the rich young ruler walked away sad. Oh, what must I do to have eternal life? Okay, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and then follow me. Sell what you have. Sell these trinkets. Sell this nothing. And follow me, the one who has created all these things. The crazy thing is, is Jesus Christ would probably give them all back to him with interest. But he was unwilling to follow after the creator of all things in the one in whom was eternal life. Your God is God whether you desire to fellowship with him or not whether to follow after him or not. This is why we, we talked yesterday in our men's group, we talk about magnifying the Lord. You can't make God bigger. Okay, you can't. But you can sure make him bigger in your own mind. I mentioned yesterday a book by J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small. He is. There is not one person who thinks rightly about the living God, who embraces the living God, who desires the living God as they should. And we miss so much. I miss so much. If we're living for things, for pleasures, for prominence, for pennies, and these things are more important than our Savior. If we as saints are living that way, you've got nothing to offer the world. You've got nothing. Because you're just like them. So great was Jesus Christ, as you read into John's Gospel in the first chapter, two guys, Andrew and Philip. Andrew and Philip. They're the come and see guys. They're grabbing guys going, come and see. Andrew's grabbing Peter going, come on. And Peter's like, Arr, get away from me. Nathaniel, same thing. Get away from me. They're like, come and see. We found the Savior. They're like excited. Come and see. Saint, oh, that we would see God in the weird sunrises and sunsets that we've had lately. That we would seek God. 
in his word that we would delight in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit amongst the saints. That we would savor God in prayer. That we would sit under others who have found the living God. Four titles for you. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Desiring God by John Piper. The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Great books saturated with the Word of God to help slap you upside of the head and go, this is what you're missing. We don't evangelize because our God's just not that great. But the second problem is we don't think sin's really that big a deal. I was speaking with a couple of saints this week, two different occasions, just about the, the laws in California, about predation and predators and those kinds of things and how they're going to loosen the, loosen the law. And we were kind of like hemming and hawing about, well, you know, is the law really that strict? Is it, you know, consent and all of that jazz? And it's like, we're looking at the law on this plane. You know what the law is in Scripture to Israel for sexual sin? What is the consequence? Death. We have been infected by the world. Hey, it's, 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 a, it's a small, it's a little thing. Death. We do not get what a treasonous act our sin is largely because we have an impotent grasp of the holiness and righteousness of the living God. So, what is sin? Sin is coming to consciousness in the most beautiful place on the earth. To have a bride brought to you who is extraordinary, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. To walk with the living God and then do the one thing you were told not to do. Sin is a people redeemed from Egypt seeing the, the majesty and the miracles of the living God who then go and worship a golden calf. Sin is David, despite being given a kingdom and wives and concubines, walking on a roof and wanting somebody else's wife. And, oh, by the way, killing her husband on top of it. Sin is Judas betraying to the death the one he had walked to for three years. Sin is Peter denying to his shame the one he confessed as God and Messiah. Sin is you and me choosing anything over God. When we disobey, that's what we do. When we covet that which we do not have that's what we do. When we are proud and arrogant, when we set ourselves up as better than somebody else, that is what we do. We sin.
when we worry, when we are bitter. Tim Keller's got a great quote. When we worry, we believe God's going to get it wrong. When we are bitter, we are convinced that God has gotten it wrong. God blew it. He doesn't understand. And that leads to our anger. Why are we not thankful? Sin. How pervasive is sin? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How bad is it? You were conceived in sin, according to Psalm 51.5. You want to see a great menu of how bad it is? Romans 3, 10 to 18. Paul takes a whole bunch of the Psalms and packages them into one nice little, you are a mess. You are broken. Right there. It is pervasive. How severe is sin? R.C. Sproul wrote in The Holiness of God, he says, life on this planet has become the arena in which we daily carry out cosmic treason. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act in which we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one whom we owe everything. Well, it doesn't doesn't make that big a deal, you know. It's not going to affect anybody. The consequences of sin in this life are far-reaching. You see them every day. Paul, again, this time in 2 Timothy in his final letters, writes to the young pastor, he says, understand this. He says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And what we're going to see from these times of difficulty is because it's because of sin. Here are the times of difficulty that Paul speaks of. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. He's only about halfway done. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never being able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. How bad is sin? Really? That's just what's going on here. The punishment for sin that is coming in the life to come is horrifying. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica in the second letter to them, chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, those who are apart from God will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
It isn't merely the condemnation. We're going to talk about the, you know, the flames of fire here in just a minute. But you are away from God. How does the omnipresent God do that? I don't know. But they are going to be away from his glory. The, the absence of all that is good and splendid and his splendor. There will be eternal separation in the life to come. There will be eternal suffering in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. At the end, he tells the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You, you know, this wasn't even created for man. As Satan rebels, this is created for them, the lake of fire. And the angelic host that he leads astray. But those who have rebelled against the living God and refuse eternal life in Jesus Christ, they're going there too. Eternal punishment versus eternal life. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ draws a stark line in Matthew 25, 46. Six times in Matthew's gospel, six times Jesus Christ refers to the weeping and the gnashing of teeth of those who are going to spend eternity in hell. Six times. And you're going to hear people who say, well, you know, we really shouldn't evangelize with fire and brimstone. Jesus did. It's the truth. Eternal damnation. Do you not care? And if they don't, think of, think of Ezekiel's words. You know, at least I told them. But if, I'm, if I go, ah, it's not that big a deal. What? You know, we may go, well, there's always tomorrow. Song from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But Jesus Christ said, tonight your life will be required of you. To the man who built bigger barns. Ah, great. Herod Agrippa boasted before the living God and was struck down and eaten by worms. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Now. You are not promised tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1 Do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. James chapter 4 verses 13 and 16 says you're a mist. You're the fog that burns off. Now I can see clearly and everything's good. But Steve's gone. Where'd Steve go? Oh, Steve died. Oh man, that's a bummer. What are we having for lunch? So I would argue that if we comprehended God as who he is as the greatest treasure and sin as the greatest cancer, we would be more apt to share the good news of restoration with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, so here's some encouragement. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. I think there are some problematic passages that we will oftentimes use for evangelism that we maybe shouldn't. 
because they may be directed specifically to the apostles and not to us. You know, we don't take those apostolic um, exhortations to not take any money and don't take a cloak and only go to the house of Israel. We don't do that. Why? Because we understand Jesus was speaking specifically to the apostles. So it's real important that when we're looking at those types of evangelistic passages that we understand the context. We know that God gave some specifically to be evangelists. And oh, by the way, there may be some here right now who God is working on who may not even be paying attention because they're they're coloring in the back. They're little ones, but God may be raising them up to go. He may gift them as evangelists for the church, for the building up of churches elsewhere. But not all of us are evangelists. Me, not. So Colossians chapter 4, this is for us ordinary people. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul is the evangelist. He's inviting the church at Colossae to be in prayer for him. So we, non-evangelists, can have a hand in evangelistic efforts for those we know who are going out specifically to that end to build churches, to call people to Christ. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 5, to us, to you guys back home, to you non-evangelists, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the first thing Paul's telling us non-evangelists is walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Put your phone away and be aware of the people around you. But to walk in wisdom, as you read through the Proverbs, Wisdom is a right orientation with God and a comprehension. So for me, to walk in wisdom is to walk with the living God first and primarily. Once again, you can't give what you ain't got. To walk in wisdom with the living God toward then outsiders. That then applies to my relationship with other people. So I'm living in a manner that conforms to the truth of God's word. And then I have an awareness toward outsiders. Now, this is, this is really obvious, but don't expect lost people to act saved. They won't. They don't. It's not in their nature. Paul even says the same thing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 10. He says, don't expect a lost person to act saved. Now, if a saved person is acting lost, have nothing to do with that person. But I'm not talking about lost people. They're supposed to be lost. So don't expect him to speak your language. He's not going to understand your jargon and your Christianese. 
don't expect him to understand the dire situation in which he finds himself. He's not going to get it right off the bat. Walk in wisdom. Paul then goes on to say, Make, making the best use of the time. How much time do you have? I don't know. <laughs> Great. I don't know. Some people you know, you're just passing. You're sitting by them on an airplane. You're talking to them at Walmart. Might never see them again. Okay? So time is a limited commodity. And really our relationships have to be wise based on the time that we have. Now, simply because you have a lot of time with a person doesn't mean, ah, well, I got 15 years. Again, today is the day of salvation. What would I do if I knew my time was limited? Well, it is. So what do I do with people? I develop relationships with them. I have relationships with people. That's not my gift. I'm, I'm an introvert. To be with people, that's what God calls us all to do. I can't go hide in a closet. I am created to be with people. Ask them. One of the greatest things you can do is simply ask them their story. People love to talk about themselves, so ask about their story. Where are you from? You know, you know growing up, did you, did you guys go to church at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, you... Uh, what's, what are your thoughts about church? What do you think about church? You know, those kinds of things. Get them talking about their story. And then if they have spoken of their story, you will likely have an opportunity to talk about your story. People tend to want to reciprocate that way. And then you have an opportunity to share them what, share with them what Christ has done in your life. And notice how Paul concludes here with the, uh, the Church of Colossae. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. <clears throat> let your speech always be gracious. In 1 Corinthians 13, we think of that as the love chapter, but it's also the math chapter. Okay, Mathematics, somebody who's young here. Multiplication. If I multiply a number times zero, what do I get? Zero. zero. I get zero. Paul does mathematics, math, math multiplication in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 3. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If we have lofty language, Times no love, gong, nothing. You got nothing. You're a clanging symbol. Second verse, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries, I'm really hyper-spiritual in all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Prophetic insights plus mountain-moving faith times no love is zero. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Sacrifice money, sacrifice life times no love, eh, nothing. 
Paul says to the Colossians, be gracious in your speech. Gracious speech is pleasing speech. It is a pleasing manner. The words may not be pleasing, but your manner must be. That's what he's driving at. He's not saying soft pedal the gospel. He's not saying don't tell them about hell, but you don't have to be there just screaming at somebody. Who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ? Get away. So much of our speech today is divisive and antagonistic and rude and crude. But the person across from me is created in the image of God. And so I respect them as an image bearer of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a seasoned speech. Seasoning bites. The truth of the gospel is going to bite. I cannot have all seasoning without the grace. It's like dumping the whole salt shaker on a steak. Go, oh, dude. Ah. No. There has got to be the grace. You know, this, this simply means that you care about others. I care. I care about you. I want to look at one other passage here very briefly. Because in 1 Peter, Peter says almost the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 3. That Paul says, verses 14 to 16, but Peter does it in the light of suffering. Verse 14, 1 Peter 3. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Christ the Lord is holy. Honor Christ, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Some key things I just want to draw from that. We understand that Christ is Lord. We are his ambassadors. He is the Lord. We honor Christ as Lord. We honor him as Lord. We honor him as holy. And he has sent us into the world. And he has sent us to be beaten. He has sent us to suffer. If you don't know that, you're looking at a wrong gospel. We are going to suffer in this world. And he says, it's okay. But I trust Christ and I march forward. Peter tells them to always be prepared. The Boy Scout motto. And it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Be prepared. Peter says, be prepared. Failing to plan is planning to fail. Yes, always be prepared. I, I should always be thinking of opportunities. I should be ready to start talking to people I don't know. In situations that are natural. I mean, if you just walk up to somebody at United who's looking at the bread and you start talking to them awkwardly, they're going to run around the aisle start looking at the ice cream. But be prepared. That's the walk in wisdom thing. God is going to give you divine appointments. He will. Pray for him. Look for him. 
with strangers, with friends, with family members, with coworkers. But what are you supposed to be ready for? Ready to make a defense, an apologia, apologetics. Why do you believe what you believe? You're just, you're just called upon to be a witness. Tell me, how is this Christ so important to you? Why is he a big deal? Why are you giving up? Why are you giving up your Sundays? You're getting up early to go to Sunday school too? Really? You spent four hours at church? Really? Why do you believe what you believe? Now, the implication here is there's a difference between you and other people. I would be so bold that one of the reasons many of us do not get asked for the reason of the hope that is in us is that nobody sees the hope in us. The reason we don't get asked about the hope that is in us is nobody sees a hope. They don't see you as any different than the world around you. We live oftentimes as Christians very hopeless lives and we look no different than the lost souls with whom we are rubbing shoulders. Christ's motivation going to the cross was joy for the joy set before him. Joy, we should be overflowing with the joy of our Lord. And again, Peter notes that manner, manner matters with gentleness and respect. And in so doing, when we do this, we have a good conscience. We have done what God has called us to do. And this, even in the midst of our suffering. So St. Me, hey Keith, let me look in the mirror. If Christ is no treasure to you, you'll be seen by others to be doing nothing more than selling a used car if you're trying to shill the gospel to them. I have to fathom the glories of God and ache that others might know him. I have to fathom the atrocities of my own sin still. The sin for which my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died and the hell from which he redeemed me. And I have to fathom the hell to which others are bound and the God they will be missing. Now let us saints saturate ourselves with the encouragements of God's word and the exhortations of others to be a witness, to be ready, to be gracious and bold, to pray for opportunities. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Oh, Father, forgive me for being a weak and cowardly man. For not loving you and seeing you as the God that you are. God, move my heart. Move the heart of my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ here that we would ache and desire to evangelize the world, to share the good news. Oh, that one 
might be saved. Father, fill our hearts to overflowing that we would be salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.